Please take your copy of the scriptures, and if you're able, stand with me as we turn in the Old Testament to the book of Daniel, where this evening I'll be reading the first eight verses, but in many ways talking more thematically about the first half of this book as a whole. Daniel chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Before we hear that portion of God's word, let's ask God's blessing upon us. Gracious God and Father, send now your Spirit, even as we have sung together in prayer tonight, that the eternal Spirit would continue to guide us in truth, renew us in conviction, lead us in holiness, instruct us in righteousness, and give to us the comforts and assurance of your grace. Bless us as we hear your word this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of God from Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the, of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart, that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are perhaps some of the greatest examples that we have in Scripture of what it means to live a holy life far away from home. In very difficult circumstances to be courageous, to be convicted, even in the face of one's enemies, and to trust God with joy, without complaint, without apparent fear, certainly without any evident despair. Apart from Jesus himself, these four stand out in a very elite company of men who trusted God and obeyed God in incredible suffering under arduous conditions and did so in a fashion where the Bible saw fit, sees fit, the Lord through the Bible sees fit not to record any example of sin. How remarkable was their piety? Three times the prophet Ezekiel cites Daniel as an example of exemplary holiness. He says, even if Daniel interceded for these people... I would not spare them. And that is all the more remarkable when you recognize that Ezekiel and Daniel are contemporaries. You are at this point in the closing years of the period that we call Judah alone and in the opening years of what we call the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. You have three major prophets operating at this time. 
Jeremiah is prophesying in Jerusalem and Judea, both to the king and to the common people who are to be found there. Hezekiah, uh, Ezekiel rather, his name does not, is not Hezekiah, Ezekiel has already been taken as a captive from a priestly family. He's never served as a priest. He's apparently taken at about the age of 30. He is now among the captives at the river Kibar, and he is the prophet of God to the Israelite captives who are to be found there. And Daniel, along with his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, have been taken into the court of the king of Babylon. And he will be a non-typical prophet in that he is not a preacher, but he is a wise man, he is a seer, he is a writer, and he testifies of God's truth, the true God, to Nebuchadnezzar and to those who follow him. You have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all ministering at roughly the same time. They are contemporaries of one another. They know of one another's work. Ezekiel speaks of Daniel, and Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 is reading an early draft of the first edition of the book of Jeremiah. And they are working in complementary ways. But for Ezekiel and a prophet of such great esteem to appeal to Daniel as an example of exemplary piety really says a lot about him. Now what I want to do tonight is rather than studying or expounding a particular text, I want to simply survey some important lessons from Daniel's life that we can think about in a thematic way. But in order to get there, I want to remind you of some of the background that is often not known or forgotten as we think about the story of Daniel. Take your Bible and turn in the Old Testament to 2 Kings chapter 20. And let me remind you of an experience during the reign of Hezekiah, who's obviously on my mind, but jumped into the sermon unexpectedly. 2 Kings chapter 20. Hezekiah is reigning over the southern kingdom of Judah some years prior at the time that the Assyrian Empire destroys the northern kingdom of Israel. This is around 722 B.C. that that happens. Hezekiah is a good king, a righteous king, a reformer king, and yet a king who, like the best of men, is but a man. And he commits sin in a number of ways, and we see a moment of weakness at this point in his life. To set up that story, let me read the first 11 verses of 2 Kings chapter 20 and remind you of a story from Hezekiah's life that you probably know well. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to Yahweh, saying, Remember now, O Yahweh, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says Yahweh, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of Yahweh." And I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that Yahweh will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of Yahweh the third day? Then Isaiah said, This is the sign to you from Yahweh, that Yahweh will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go backward ten, ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it is, easy, is, it is an easy thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward ten degrees. 
So Isaiah the prophet cried out to Yahweh, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. And this is a familiar story from Hezekiah's life. He is he's brought to a near-death experience. We don't know exactly the circumstances of his illness. It evidently uh, involves some kind of a boil, which we wouldn't normally think to be fatal. And yet God clearly communicates to him that it would be. Put your house in order because you're going to die. And Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and he pleads with God. He pours out his heart. He's weeping as he prays. And Isaiah has not even gotten out of the palace complex before the Lord turns him right back around and sends him back and says, you've got 15 more years. Now imagine the enthusiasm, the gratitude, the sense of God's mercy and grace and power, the relief that Hezekiah must have felt in that moment. It's very important for you to keep that in your mind because it sets up immediately the next story. Continue reading in verse 12. At that time, Barodak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of Yahweh which you have spoken is good, for he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Have you seen the connection yet? At the time of Hezekiah's reign, Babylon, what will become the Neo-Babylonian Empire, is a rising power, but not yet recognized as a great threat in the region. Assyria controls the ancient Near East. It is the dominant power. It is part of the reason that the Lord, through Isaiah, says to Hezekiah when he spares his life, I will deliver you from Assyria as well, because Assyria is destroying the northern kingdom and is knocking on Jerusalem's door to do the same there. Hezekiah is keenly aware of the threat of Assyria. But Babylon is not on his radar. The king of Babylon sends emissaries to Hezekiah with a present to inquire, how are you doing? We heard that you were ill. We want to make sure that you're well. You can imagine the way in which they communicated that to the king. You are such an important king in this region. Your nation is, is such an important outpost against this common enemy that we have in Assyria. We want to support you. We want to encourage you. We want you to know how much we value your leadership. And Hezekiah was no doubt flattered by that. Hezekiah shows the Babylonian ambassadors everything. He gives them a tour of his treasury, of all of his wealth, 
of his security installations, he opens the doors, the secrets of the palace and the regime in Jerusalem. And yet ultimately, the Bible says all of this was a test from God that Hezekiah sadly failed due to his pride. Turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 34 for just a moment. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, look with me at verses 24 and following. Verse 24 of 2 Chronicles chapter 32. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to Yahweh, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of Yahweh did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. That gives you the scripture, interpret scripture. That's, that's the Holy Spirit's commentary on this story that we read about in 2 Kings. What's happening there? Well, Hezekiah is proud. He's excited, he's thankful, no doubt, that his life was spared, that he was given 15 more years. He's flattered when these representatives of the king of Babylon come in. He realizes that he is, after all, a very important king. And it would be tragic if the ancient Near East had to do without him. And so he opens the storehouses, he opens the security rooms, he shows them everything only to hear Isaiah say, one day they will own everything that you have shown to them. This was a test from the Lord, and Hezekiah failed it. He failed it because of his pride, because his heart was lifted up. But if you think that that was a fatal error, well, no, realize that the Holy Spirit says, then Hezekiah humbled himself. He saw that he had been proud, and that is apparently what's going on. When you read in 2 Kings chapter 20, the Lord say, judgment is coming, Babylon gets it all, your children are going to be taken away, and Hezekiah says, the word that the Lord has spoken is good. You're thinking, good? There's nothing good about what the Lord just said to you. Well, no, we're not to understand it as Hezekiah saying, well, that's good that these things are going to happen. But he's saying, yes, amen. Let, may it be so. At least the Lord will spare us in this generation. At least judgment will not come at this time. And yet Chronicles tells us Hezekiah is humbling himself. He is accepting the word of the Lord, knowing it, it's justice, but thankful that that sentence has been stayed at least for a time. Later in verse 31, uh, this same text, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 31 says, However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him, that is from Hezekiah, in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. Sometimes the Lord does that. He steps back. Our, our confession talks about that. He steps back, he takes his hand off of us, just to remind us that when I take my hand away, you fall on your face. Right? That my hand on the seat of your bicycle is the reason that you are still upright. If I take my hand away, you will fall. And Hezekiah learns that lesson the hard way once again. Hezekiah accepted God's judgment. Hezekiah's pride was not ultimately the reason that Judah fell, but... The Babylonian conquest was attributable in part to this incident, in part to the circumstances that unfold in the aftermath of Hezekiah's illness. Now fast forward a number of years. Babylon rebelled against Assyria in 626 B.C. 
and with the Medes overthrew Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, in 612 B.C. Seven years later, in 605, Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians in the Battle of Carchemish, a very important battle in terms of the history of the ancient Near East. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar entered Palestine and made King Jehoiakim a vassal of Babylon. At that point, functionally, Judah's political independence is over. They are now a vassal state of the Babylonian Empire. And it's at this time that Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are taken away to Babylon, the first of at least three waves of captives that would be taken. Now, this same Nebuchadnezzar eventually destroys Judah and the city of Jerusalem and burns the temple of Yahweh, culminating in that judgment of 586 B.C. But Daniel is one of the first captives who are taken. And Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are chosen because of their connection to the nobility. Go back to Daniel chapter 1 for just a moment. In Daniel chapter 1, remember that Nebuchadnezzar instructs Ashpenaz to bring some of the children of Israel, some of, verse 3, the king's descendants and some of the nobles. What does that tell you about Daniel's family? He's part of the ruling class. This is not a poor kid from the, from the ghettos. This is a kid from the elite corridors of Judah's uh, nation. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And what do they do with those young men? Well, who is put in charge of them? Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs. And what did the Lord, through Isaiah, say to Hezekiah would be done to his sons who were carried away to Babylon? They will serve the king of Babylon in his palace as eunuchs. Are you making the connection? What happens to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? I want you to have this context clear in your mind because it makes their faith and faithfulness all the more remarkable. These young men, almost certainly teenagers when they're taken, they've got to be young enough to be put into a three-year indoctrination program, young enough that they can be controlled, young enough that they can be indoctrinated, not old enough to be active in their rebellion, but old enough to be able to assimilate the instruction that they're going to receive, so that at the end of three years, they will be ready to move into the court of the king. They are taken away from their home, away from their family, and they are castrated. And then they are placed into a three-year program of indoctrination in a nation whose language they do not speak, whose literature they do not know, whose culture is entirely foreign to them. They are renamed. They are receiving a different identity. Your Hebrew identity is gone. Your Judaic history and heritage is over. We are going to maim you and remake you, and rename you, and give you names that now honor our God. And we are going to teach you a new language, and a new culture, and new traditions, and then we are going to put you in the court of the king, and this is the rest of your life. You are going to be one of the king's eunuchs until you die. And what, do, what would you expect from teenagers in that situation? Like, what would you expect in the trajectory, the moral and spiritual trajectory of young men who go through that kind of experience. You would understand if they became unbelievers. You would understand 
if they lost all hope. You would understand if they become believing Babylonians. Instead, what you see are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are perhaps the most faithful young men in the entire Bible. It's arguable, but it's a pretty good argument. As we said, there's no sin recorded in their lives. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't sinners. We know that they sinned. But the Bible includes the sins of some pretty important heroes in Scripture. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah. There's there's some pretty big names whose sins are on full display in Scripture. But you will look in vain in the book of Daniel to find any sin recorded concerning these four men. In many ways, these four young men are like Joseph who in a similar way is taken away from his home, away from his family, put into a foreign culture, indoctrinated in so many ways. And yet I would argue that Daniel's experience in Babylon is far more extreme than even what Joseph experienced. And in Joseph's case, you could argue that there are moments of pride. There are, there are times where he is exacerbating the hatred of his brothers. But, but what are you going to say about Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? What I want to know is where does their faith come from? Joseph, you could say, his father Jacob is a believer. His grandfather Isaac is a believer. His great-grandfather Abram is the father of the faithful. Like We know that, that Joseph comes from a rich heritage of faith. Where does Daniel's faith come from? Where, where does he come from? He's part of the nobility. He's a descendant of the royal family. He may be the king's cousin. The point is that his parents and his grandparents and his great-grandparents are the reason that they're in Babylon. If his elders had been believers, they wouldn't be in Babylon right now. The whole reason that the nation is being taken over by Babylon is because of the unfaithfulness and disobedience of the nobility and ruling class. And that's Daniel's family. That's all of his friends. The fact that Daniel is a believer at all is remarkable. The fact that he remains a believer is a miracle. But what it reminds you is that faith is the gift of God. That faith is a work of God's grace. That it's the Holy Spirit who raises up covenant youth so that they excel the faith and faithfulness of their parents, which is what we pray for our covenant kids every Sunday morning, and hopefully you're praying that through the week. We pray that your children will be more faithful than their parents and their teachers. We want them to stand on our shoulders and see further and believe more earnestly and bear fruit more abundantly. We want them to do better than we do. And yet maybe we pray that and we wonder, can that really happen? Well, Daniel's story should show you that not only can it, it has. Daniel's story is remarkable. He comes from an unbelieving context, and and as we learn in Jeremiah chapter 24, he is the good fig that is taken away, and the bad figs are left to be burned. Remember that that one of the uh, things that Jeremiah has to fight against in his ministry is the idea that, oh, these captives that have been taken in the first and the second wave... They're the bad people. They're the bad people. That's why they were taken away. But the, but the good people, the faithful people, God's blessing us. He's left us here in, in two years. Two more years, those captives are coming back. And Jeremiah says, no. No, it'll be 70 years. And the temple is going to be burned. 
And by the way, the captives that were taken, they're the only ones that God's going to save. That's what he says. Jeremiah says that as one who knows he won't be taken to Babylon. He'll be left to die with those who are left behind. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are plucked like a brand from the burning. And they are taken away to a place of blessing that doesn't look like a blessing. (laughs) They are taken like the child Jesus into the house of bondage away from the apostate people of God. You see the connection? This is a Christ story. Herod is trying to kill the baby Jesus. Where do they go? To Egypt. (laughs) The leaders of Judah are rebelling against God. Where do the elect go? To Babylon. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and and Azariah never return. And yet, they are part of that remnant chosen by grace for everlasting blessing. I want to point out just a few things from these early chapters of the book of Daniel, things that you're very familiar with, but I want to simply underline here tonight. The first is that these young men are consecrated to God, but very courteous in the holiness that they pursue. Verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Now, one thing that is important to know is that here... The commitment that is made is attributed to Daniel. In chapter 3, you will see the refusal to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image is attributed to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I don't think in either of those places you are to read that as Daniel, but not Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The context shows that they shared in the same dietary protocols that Daniel requested. And in chapter 3, who knows where Daniel is? At that point, he has been elevated to a position of great authority in the kingdom. He is arguably not even in the capital at that time. I don't think we're supposed to assume here that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah wanted to go along with defiling themselves. And in chapter 3, if Daniel was there, he would be on his face worshiping that gold image. No, they kind of stand and fall together to some extent as a unit. But here, Daniel realizes that in this indoctrination program, there is going to be food and there is going to be drink that would constitute a transgression of his covenant law. And so he purposes in his heart that he will not eat or drink that. He makes up his mind, verse 8, he makes up his mind before he asks for any accommodation. He does not make up his mind that he will ask, He makes up his mind that he will not defile himself, and then he asks. Now, that's remarkable. I think a lot of Christians, and maybe a lot of young people, they would make up their mind that they'll do the best that they can based on what they're allowed to do. But that's not what Daniel did. He purposed in his heart, 
that he would not defile himself. Now we say, why, why would he be defiled? Well, probably some of this king's food would be not kosher. It would arguably violate the Mosaic dietary restrictions that he's been given, but that would not necessarily apply to the wine. But certainly all of Nebuchadnezzar's food and drink would be associated with Nebuchadnezzar's God. You see the Apostle Paul having to navigate this in Gentile congregations and Jewish and Gentile contexts where Christian believers in the New Testament are interacting with one another, and he makes it clear. He says the fact that the food has been dedicated to God does not defile the food. It does not defile the one who eats it. But if someone says to you, eat this because it has been devoted to my God, eat this in fealty to my God, Paul says you can't eat that. And we can assume that something like that is at work here. Daniel understands for some reason, maybe multiple reasons, this would constitute defilement if I participate in this. And he makes up his mind, I'm not going to defile myself. And then he looks around for options. But I think a lot of young people who are very courageous, who are very committed to their faith, when they made that decision, they would look around to start a fight. They would look around to say, Where is the door that I can chain myself to? Where is the place that I can launch my protest from? Who Who can I poke in order to show them that I will not play their game? And instead, Daniel is incredibly courteous. He goes to the chief of the eunuchs and says, can I I please do something different? He goes to the steward and says, why why don't you test me? Like 10 days is not going to make a big difference, so let's just try this on a trial basis. I don't want to get you in trouble with your boss. I don't want to get your boss in trouble with his boss, but, but let's try this. He asks for accommodations, and God grants him favor. Now, obviously, sometimes that doesn't work. There are times where no matter how courteous you may be, no matter how flexible you may try to be, no matter what accommodations you may request, you may have unbelievers who are absolutely unwilling to bend. You see the apostles standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, and then the whole group of the apostles in chapter 5. And Peter just saying, well, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to obey you rather than him, you could judge that. We're just going to keep doing what God called us to do. There are times where you just have to say we ought to obey men rather than God. But when it's possible, when it's possible to be courteous in our commitment to consecration, I think the scriptures would teach us that we should attempt to do so. Discourtesy is often the result of insecurity in our convictions. A man of courage and conviction can afford to be polite. Daniel asks permission to do what he's already decided he's going to do. He didn't have to ask permission. And yet he does so in an act of respect, and he's pursuing peace with all men insofar as it lies within him. In the second chapter, of course, you have Nebuchadnezzar, who has a dream, and he calls for his wise men to interpret the dream. There's enough substance to the dream that he can anticipate this dream means something. This was not just a bizarre moment in the night uh, that disturbed my sleep. This, This means something. So he calls the wise men, and he says, tell me what my dream means. And they say, well, of course, king, that's what we're here for. Tell us what you dreamed and we will interpret it for you. But by this time, Nebuchadnezzar has caught on to the game. Now, you need to understand that in Babylon, among the Chaldeans, there were a group, a class of wise men, seers, magicians, prophets, advisors. This would be a class that would have several different kinds of men in it, different kinds of advisory roles. But this is the class that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have been promoted into after graduating their indoctrination program at the head of their class. 
And so now they are part of this company of wise men, though not themselves the wise men that interact with Nebuchadnezzar initially in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, 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 if, if, you're, if you're a psychic, you can tell me my name, right? Have you ever wondered about that? You, know, you, go to, you shouldn't go to see psychics, of course, but if you ever do, and they say, well, tell me your name, you say, well, you're the psychic, you tell me my name, right? Let's just start there, right? So he says, well, you're the wise man. You're going to tell me what the dream means. You ought to know what the dream is. So tell me what I dreamed, and then I'll know that I can trust your interpretation. And the wise men answer very candidly, there's not a wise man in the world that can do that. There's no, there's no one that could do that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, then why do we have wise men? And he just decides we ought to kill all of the wise men. That seems, that seems like the appropriate thing to do in the ancient world. And so Daniel is informed, hey, uh, later this afternoon, someone's going to come and kill all of you. So just you kind of get ready. And uh, Daniel says, why? He says, well, because the wise men were not able to interpret the king's dream. And once again, what does Daniel do? Well, he doesn't mope. He doesn't despair. He doesn't get angry. He, doesn't, he, he asks for time. He asks for time. Notice in verse 14 of Daniel chapter 2. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of, of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's demand. You know, you might, you might expect that if there's somebody outside the door waiting to kill you and the clock is ticking, that when you get the answer in prayer, the first thing that you would do is, is go directly to the king and tell him what he wants to know. But instead, instead, Daniel takes the time to thank and praise the Lord. You're familiar with the dream and its interpretation. The, the great image with the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay mixed. And the picture of God's kingdom as a rock cut out without hands that smashes the kingdoms of men, that grows into a mountain and then continues to grow until it fills the whole earth a picture of the establishment of the messianic kingdom that would be inaugurated in the days of that fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. You're familiar with all of that. It's one of the most important prophecies in the entire Bible, and yet it's set right here in the midst of this incredible experience that Daniel and his companions have, where they show such confidence in God and are serious in their prayers without any despair. And this is not typical, by the way, of the prophets. Like, we see prophets, we see great and marvelous prophets who have moments of self-pity and doubt and despair. We see Elijah praying, Lord, take my life, I'm no better than my father's. We see Jeremiah saying, I'm not going to preach anymore because it's not doing me any good. And then the word is like a fire in my bones and he cannot hold it back. We see those kinds of experiences by prophets. Daniel and his friends say, well, you know what? If you'll give us time, we will pray and we will see what God does. And if God gives us the answer, then... So be it. And he did. And God blesses them. Why should righteous men die 
because of fools. It seems so unfair. It seems so unjust. But that's Daniel's whole life. Like, like Daniel's whole life is, is an example of this principle of the righteous suffering because of unrighteous men. But you know what you see in this story is that faithful men are not in a rush. They worship God when the answer comes. They don't panic. They don't try to flee. They simply say, give us time and let us pray. They trusted God for the outcome, and they prayed like men who knew they were on the threshold of death, and they were okay with that. And how do you know that? Because of chapter 3. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, who recently had a dream about a great golden image and was reassured by a man of God, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are that head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar has a great idea. He says, why don't I build a 90-foot golden statue of myself? And then I'll hire a symphony orchestra and everyone in the capital, when they hear the symphony play, will turn wherever they're standing and see that image lifted up and they'll get on their faces and worship me. And so that's what they do. Now the whole book of Daniel can be seen as a progressive revelation of the kingdom of God and the authority of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of men. And you can see that in particular in the ways that Gentile kings and magistrates progressively recognize and ultimately submit themselves to the authority of Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar's journey in that regard from chapter 2 to 3 to 4 is truly remarkable, but that's a lesson for another day. Well, as Nebuchadnezzar gives this command, there are three Jews in the capital at that time who, of course, do not participate and so we come to Daniel chapter 3 and verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? He just did it. He was doing fine. Right up until that last part. You know, I mean, he's a pagan king. What do you expect? He's going to have idols. He's going to have uh, a symphony. And he's going to expect people to worship his gods. He's going to burn them if they don't. All of this is going according to plan. But then he has to say it. He has to dare God to prove that he's impotent. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image 
which you have set up. I, this is one of my favorite exchanges in the entire Bible. Like this is, this is like my second favorite prophet-king conversation in the Old Testament. It's great. Oh, king, we have no need. If, if that's the case, we, we don't even need to answer. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar thinking to himself, at least they're going to be reasonable. At least they're going to submit to my authority now. They say, if that's the case, well, the God that you're thinking doesn't even exist is, is our God, actually. Our, our God is able to save us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he could definitely save us from you. Uh, and if he doesn't, we still will not worship your image. It's remarkable. They do not angrily defy the king. They do not disrespect him. They do not panic. They do not despair. They don't have to grit their teeth. They simply calmly defy the king and say, our God is able. We don't know if he's willing. It doesn't matter whether he's willing or not. We know what his will is. But if not, the right thing to do in that situation doesn't depend on whether you survive it or not. The right thing to do in that situation doesn't depend on the odds of the outcome. The right thing to do is determined by God's will. And they are prepared to die in that case. You see something similar with Daniel and the decree of the Persian king in chapter 6. When his advisors, in order to entrap Daniel, propose a law that for 30 days no one can pray to any god except the god who imagines that he is sitting on the throne, the, the king himself. And the Bible says that when Daniel knew the decree was signed, what did he do? He filed a protest. He filed an injunction. He chained himself to the doors of City Hall. He wept in despair. No, it says he went home and he opened his windows toward Jerusalem and he knelt down three times that day as he did every other day. He didn't change his practice at all. And when he's thrown into the lion's den, he doesn't care. You'll remember another connection between these two stories. It's an important parallel in this book, by the way. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all trussed up. He has the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. I don't even know how you measure that kind of thing. He has soldiers then carry them out to the furnace, throw them inside, and the soldiers who carried them died. They died from the heat. And then, the most frightening part of the entire chapter, as far as I'm concerned, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound, into the fire. That just, that just sounds bad. And then Nebuchadnezzar is looking, he's watching, and he says, how many men did we throw in? Three, O king. Right. Why do I see four walking around free? And one of them looks like a son of the God. And he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out. And their hair isn't singed. And their clothes don't smell like smoke. And the fire hasn't touched them. And similarly, when Daniel is brought out of the lion's den, the morning after, he says, the Lord sent an angel and closed the lion's mouth. In both cases, the angel of the Lord goes and walks with his children with his servants through the fire and shuts the mouths of lions just as the psalmist said. Go home and read Psalm 91. Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, no doubt, had prayed and chanted it many times. Men regularly 
ruin their witness and shipwreck their faith in hope of prolonging their life just a little bit more or promoting their own success. But Daniel and company were committed to finishing well, and they were prepared to finish today. And you have to be as well. Every morning when you get up, you need to be prepared to finish today. And you also need to be prepared for the fact that you may not finish for decades from now. And you've seen men who are not prepared to finish well today, and you've seen men who live for decades, and when they finally finish, you wish they had finished decades earlier. And and we need to learn from these men to be prepared to finish well today or a hundred years from now. They would not trade their faith for freedom from pain. They would not trade their relationship to God for a few more years enslaved to the shame of having compromised their faith. You will never regret bowing down to that image. The flame only lasts for a little while. How do we apply these kinds of experiences? This has just been kind of a a general survey. But how do we apply this kind of scripture to our lives today? There are two things I want you to think about, and then the lesson will be yours. First, as a Reformed minister, obviously, I need to say, Daniel is a type of Christ, right? You've seen that already. Now, I, I will acknowledge that some in the community are against this kind of moralizing that the lesson might seem to do, never mind the fact that the New Testament calls us to do this very thing to take note of righteous men in the former scriptures, to imitate their faith, to learn from their failures again and again and again. You read about this in the New Covenant scriptures. The truth is we can and we should imitate Daniel insofar as we see him imitating Christ. He is a model of Christ. He is following Jesus. He can help us understand how to do the same in similar circumstances. But ultimately, Daniel's courageous holiness... And his life of faith is a picture of Jesus and of the Spirit's power working within him. Because Jesus is the greater Daniel who enters the house of bondage, who suffers in righteousness, who announces the kingdom of God, who humbles the proud, who descends into the grave and rises again triumphantly. As long as you're reading Psalm 91 tonight, go read Psalm 22, which is about Jesus' suffering, except it sounds a little bit like Daniel's. Daniel is a picture of what Christ is able to do in and through his faithful servants in, in danger in trials, in flame, in lion's den. Secondly, I want you to imagine for a moment the kind of situation that Daniel and his friends faced and how close it could be for some of our own young people. Like most of us with gray hair, like we're not going to get taken. Like remember, it's good looking without blemish. Okay, immediately we are all, you know, rules us out of that category. But some of our young people, maybe, maybe they would be chosen for the honor of being taken to Babylon and mutilated and brainwashed and given a new identity and thrown into a pagan court. Can you imagine the collapse of our nation and deportation and indoctrination and threats of death? Can Christians remain faithful under such grievous trials? Not only can they, we must be prepared to do so. You must be prepared to do so. And you need to be praying for and preaching to your children and grandchildren these very stories. Daniel models courageous holiness far from the homeland. 
He lives with moral and spiritual clarity at a time when few, if any, of his brethren had it. And we see very little of it today as well. What is it in our lives that causes us to be so easily discouraged, to despair, to complain, to become angry and frantic? I dare say none of us are really facing the kind of circumstances that these young men experienced every day of their lives for a long time. Stories like Daniel's place our woes and our weaknesses in another perspective and should make us a little bit less patient with ourselves. We should aspire to be no less faithful than Daniel was, even if we hope that none of us ever have to suffer as he did. Daniel knew the God in whom he had believed and to whom he belonged, and he remembered and lived in light of that truth through captivity, through danger, through many trials. And my prayer is that the Lord would help us to live and die with the same courageous holiness and the same true faith that he shows us in his story. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we're thankful that your word is full of the stories of our fathers and mothers in the faith. And we know, O God, that the righteousness, the courage, the obedience, the success that we see in their lives is not their own doing, but rather is your work in and through them. And we know, O Lord, that their frailties and failures, O God, are a a picture of the frailties and failure that we ourselves are subject to. We pray that these stories would inspire us and our children and our children's children to greater faith and to greater faithfulness, even though it be through fiery trials. We thank you for the blessing of this Lord's Day, and we thank you that you have met with us, that you've renewed covenant with us, that you have reassured us of your love, and we pray that you would watch over us as we return to our homes, as we enter into a new work week, that you would strengthen our head, our heart, and our hands, that we might be faithful and fruitful even in the work that you set before us, and that you would keep us through faith for life everlasting. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.